0: Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Pierce, the UK's ambassador to the UN. Pierce has had a long career as a diplomat, joining the Foreign Office in 1981. Her work has taken her to Japan, Washington DC and Afghanistan. In March 2018, she became the first woman to ever be appointed as the UK's permanent representative to the UN. With the Security Council responsible for maintenance of international peace and security, Pierce fights the UK's diplomatic battles. Pierce was thrown into the deep end when in her first week in the job, she found herself in battle with Russia on the Security Council over who was to blame for the Novichok nerve agent poisoning in Salisbury. When her Russian counterpart suggested that they would present new evidence in the emergency session, Pierce replied, Bring it on. The pair went on to cross literary swords, exchanging Lewis Carroll, Alison Wonderland quotes to make their points. This paper has just been picked up. What's in it? said the Queen. I haven't opened it yet, said the White Rabbit, but it seems to be a letter written by the prisoner to, to somebody. Are they in the prisoner's handwriting, asked another of the jurymen. No, they are not, said the White Rabbit. Please, Your Majesty, said the knave. I didn't write it, and they can't prove I did. There is no name signed at the end. If you didn't sign it, said the king, that only makes the matter worse. You must have meant some mischief. Let the jury consider the verdict, the king said, for about the 20th time that day. No, no, said the queen. Sentence first, verdict afterwards. There's another
1: uh, very good quote uh, from Alice in Wonderland uh, that is, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. So I think that's the quote uh, that suits my Russian colleague best.
0: So Karen thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for asking me. Uh, we really appreciate you finding the time. You are over from New York for the FCO Leadership Conference. Uh, that's right. Now before we get on to your, your current role which I, we definitely want to talk about for a fair bit on this podcast we'd like to just go back in time slightly and talk about what you were doing before In this case, you were a dip the mat. And am I right in saying you grew up in Lancashire, where you described yourself as a child as a SWAT? Oh, yes. Well, my
1: schoolmates were kind enough to describe me as a SWAT. And I had an S on my tennis racket for Slazenger, but my school friend said it stood for SWAT. So there was no getting away from that. And I was really the sort of child who would rather do her Greek homework than go to the pub.
0: And at what point did you decide you want to be a diplomat? I mean, in many ways, it's not the most obvious career when you are told in school about the various things you can do. I, I never heard it. So, so when did you sense this career path was the one for you? Uh, well, it was
1: actually when I was at the kitchen table aged about 12 and I was reading the colour supplement of one of the big Sunday newspapers and I saw this fantastic photograph of an African-American diplomat being piped on board an aircraft carrier and there was something very compelling about the photograph, a resting blue sky, dark blue sea, grey aircraft carrier, and this fantastic woman was dressed in white. So the image was very compelling, and then I went and read the story, and it explained what she did, and I thought, that sounds like a fantastic job. And actually, when I was interviewed by The Guardian recently, they managed to identify the African-American diplomat. She would call, I think it's Eleanor Hicks, she sadly died, but she was Consul General in the south of France.
0: And then did you tell your parents at this young age that you had your career sorted?
1: No, I didn't tell my parents very much, to be absolutely honest. I kept it to myself and then I had a brief flirtation with being a nuclear scientist, which I was very keen on when I was 16. And then I wanted to be an RAF fighter pilot having read Biggles books when I was a kid but at the time women couldn't fly fast jets and I was only interested in fast jets and then reason prevailed and I went back to thinking I'd like to be a diplomat.
0: Yeah, trying to think of the things I wanted to do at that age, and I I think I come across as quite beige in comparison. (laughs) Um, I wanted to be a brownie leader. That's a very important ambition. exactly. (laughs) Then you attended Cambridge University, am I correct? That's right. And then at that point, were you basically thinking about how to get to where you wanted to be in terms of being a diplomat, or did you have a more relaxing experience at university? Um, I'm not that organised. I'm quite
1: driven about certain things, but I couldn't pretend that every month of my academic career was crowned with, with success. But I did know that I wanted to do something that involved foreign travel and something a little bit out of the ordinary, and I really liked politics and international Politics, but I also knew I needed a job, so at the same time as applying to the Foreign Office, I applied to be an accountant.
0: And were you relieved when you got the job that you wanted eventually?
1: Yes, <laughs> yes, I was, to be absolutely honest. I don't think accountancy was for me in the
0: end, but it's a, it's
1: a great profession which I'm hoping my son will consider.
0: Now, at the time you entered the Foreign and Commonwealth Office 1981, can you give us a sense of what that was like? Does it look a different to it, how it is now? Uh, It
1: physically looks different because we have many more people from different walks of life and different backgrounds, including BME staff, more women now, uh, some disabled staff. We still don't hit the national averages, unfortunately, and the Foreign Office would recognise it has more to do till it has a workforce that is genuinely representative of the diversity of Britain. But it's a much more diverse workforce than it used to be. So that's the immediate thing that strikes you. And it's also a friendlier place. People smile more in the corridors... Physically, of course, as a building, it looks very similar. The Foreign Office is an old building commissioned by Palmerston. It was a monument of its time and still is, in many ways a very beautiful building, but very much, as I say, of its time. And there's um, work going on in the Foreign Office to modernise the way it looks inside, so that when you walk around, you get a sense of the richness of Britain's past and not just a certain historical slice.
0: So when you first entered would you say that perhaps you're in the minority as a woman in, in the foreign office. Uh, well that was genuinely
1: true. I think of the 30 or so recruits that year maybe eight were were women, nine possibly. So that was that was definitely true but it, joining in 1981 wasn't so far after the time when they had to lift the bar on women leaving if they got married and they only lifted that bar around 1975 uh, and we were told all about it so it wasn't surprising it was unusual but it wasn't surprising but actually in those days at Cambridge University there was one woman to seven men so I'd come from that sort of environment I went to an all-girls school it was strange but it wasn't unexpected
0: yeah, so it wasn't the type of thing that would put you off. You're, you're pretty used to, at that point, often being in the minority.
1: It, I was never put put off by it, and I never found it personally discomposing. Uh, and I went to work on politico-military affairs, so I worked a lot with the MOD, and then I really would be the only woman in the room. But I, I didn't mind that. I got used to it, and it meant, I think, that you could say things as a junior person that you might not have been able to say if you haven't been a woman.
0: And just for listeners, I was wondering if you could describe the work of a diplomat, and I I know it varies very much depending on your specific brief, but it's one of those things I think that you often perhaps read about more in novels than know what the nine-to-five is.
1: Uh, Well, the nine-to-five can be a
0: lot of hard work.
1: It can be a lot of negotiating. Uh, That's what my team do in New York at the moment. So a middle-ranking diplomat in New York will spend a lot of time negotiating actual resolutions, either in the Security Council or the General Assembly. For example, they might work on Syria, they might work on Yemen, and they will negotiate with the other people on the Security Council. And that can take days to try and get the right balance of people's legitimate equities in the text versus when some people, one thinks of the Russians, might be being vexatious. They then spend a lot of time dealing with think tankers... In New York, who work on the UN and who work on the specific subject matter. So they become experts in their field, which means they can hold their own. They spend a lot of time making contacts within the UN hierarchy, but also with other missions, so that they have their finger on the pulse about a whole range of UN business. And then we require in the Foreign Office, we require people to put a lot of effort into corporate responsibility. So nearly everyone will have a corporate objective to make the UK mission a better place to work.
0: And you mentioned in the introduction that you've had many different postings uh, since joining the Foreign and Commonwealth, and I, am I right to say the first one was Japan? Then That's it came, right. What was that experience like? Was it daunting suddenly going to a foreign country and doing that job. I
1: was um, shaking I think the day I got off the the plane not least because I knew I was going on to Japanese language training and I'm not a native linguist and to be absolutely honest I failed my exams so I'm quite a good example of how you can get something wrong early on in your career and it doesn't have to define you for the rest of your career.
0: Was that your um, language exams? That's right I failed
1: my language exams yeah so that was an uncomfortable experience but I, I got Something out of it. I worked on economics when I was in Tokyo, and the start of the posting was before the European Union took over all trade negotiations for individual European countries. So I'm one of the very few civil servants around who can remember doing trade deals before we had the single market.
0: And you also spent some time in Afghanistan. Um, I was wondering how that kind of challenge presents itself to you when you go to a country which is in a way, very uncertain in terms of its politics. Uh, well, I went to Afghanistan as ambassador, but
1: it was the fourth time I'd worked on Afghanistan in my career. And in particular, I worked on Afghanistan immediately after 9-11, when we had the crisis and when first the coalition, uh, UK, uh, America, and then NATO put troops into Afghanistan, dealing with Al-Qaeda uh, and the Taliban in 2001. So I knew I was interested in Afghanistan, and I really wanted uh, to go back. And then another factor in my thinking, as you said earlier, I'd had these nice postings. I'd had Tokyo, I'd had Washington, I'd had New York, I'd had Geneva. There's a point at which you have to show you can do the really hard stuff as well, because so many foreign office postings are actually not in places like that. They're in places in Africa where you may be a one-person post they're in places out in Asia where you might be quite remote one of the advantages of the conference we're having at the moment is that it enables people in these very far off and still difficult to reach places to come back and reconnect so I thought I needed to put something into the pot so after talking to my family and it wasn't an easy decision but I decided I would would apply to be ambassador and I was lucky enough to get
0: it now, moving to your current job, and we again touched on that in an introduction, but you sit on the UN's Council as a permanent member, uh, along with other permanent member countries and then other members. I was just wondering if you could explain to listeners what exactly your, I suppose, typical day in and what... How do you judge a good day? Uh, Well, perhaps I'll start with what it's like to walk into the
1: UN building itself, because that in itself is is unusual. And I'd been really interested in the UN as a kid, and I'd always wanted to go there. It's a Le Corbusier-designed modern building, and it still has a terribly 1950s feel to it, because it's the original design. But at the same time, that's still quite a modern look, and you're very conscious as you walk in that you've come to a different sort of place. And that was consciously what Le Corbusier and the architects wanted you to think. But when you go into the Security Council, I remember being astonished at how much space there was. Because all the photographs of it, of course, show people hunched up over that U-shaped desk, shouting at people across the way. And actually, when you go in, there are leather chairs and a lot of space to walk across. And the U-shaped table is, is by itself in the middle of this large room. There's no light coming in. The curtains are closed. There are murals on the walls. Uh, they all depict what the United Nations was set up to be, world peace. And that's um, that's quite an interesting atmosphere. And I was so impressed to be there the, the first time. Uh, and I sat at the back and listened to the debate. Uh, today, I would go into the Security Council, perhaps to have a debate on the Yemen uh, situation. We will exchange views in the Security Council, which means in full view of the cameras. There's often an audience. The audience can be members of the public who sit on the third floor, or they can be other members of the United Nations who sit very close to the horseshoe table. They don't speak, and sometimes the debate gets very heated. We will have a briefing uh, from the special envoy for Yemen, who's a, a, a British person called Martin Griffiths. We will then debate what we've heard. We may challenge each other to be more helpful about supporting the UN or about calling out one or other of the parties to take certain courses of action to try and bring about a ceasefire. And then we can move to a much smaller room that the public never see and that debate goes on in private Uh, and as you would expect it's more heated uh, and more targeted and more raw in
0: private. Because even on camera, sometimes it looks pretty raw. Yes, I think uh, that's fair. You'd say. Now, as we mentioned in the introduction, uh, you drew a lot of headlines when you had—I suppose you could call it—a clash uh, with your Russian counterpart um, on the Salisbury poisoning of Novichok, and the British had accused Russia of doing this, and Russia were saying that this has nothing to do with them. And they used different ways to make that point, I think at one point referencing *Midsummer murders. And it became very robust. Did you expect it to be such a fight? I I did expect it, to
1: to be honest, uh, because I had experience of what happened during the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008 when I was in New York for the first time. And there, the Russian ambassador, very skillfully but determinedly, forced the debate away from the Russian invasion of Georgia and onto America granting Georgia a special relationship with NATO, which he said threatened Russia. So in essence, he changed it from invasion to a question of self-defence. So with this at the back of my mind, I wanted to prepare really well for the Salisbury debate. I had a brilliant team in the UK mission, from my deputy down to the desk officers and experts who were working on it. And we sat down and we challenged each other with questions and we tried to anticipate the sort of angles that the Russians would come up with, the sort of arguments that uh, they would come up with and we made sure that we could be clear in our answers as we presented the evidence. I wasn't prepared for Midsummer Murders, I have to admit. But again, I had a good team. Uh, I'm an English major. We were able to come up with some quotes of our own from Alice in Wonderland and knowing the Russians like Sherlock Holmes, we were very pleased to be able to say that we weren't going to give them a role in the investigation as they were proposing because that would be like Scotland Yard letting in Professor Moriarty.
0: And it's been commented there, uh, I suppose, as compared to your predecessors, perhaps you're less reliant on notes. I don't, I don't use, say if that's fair or not, but do you find often in these debates the best stuff can be off the cuff?
1: I think you have to be careful in general terms with off-the-cuff because you can find yourself going down rabbit warrens that it would be better not to go down. I personally uh, find, and people tell me, I'm a more compelling speaker when I can look around the room and not have my head down in some notes, which may be beautiful oratory, but they take something away from the dynamic setting and the immediacy. So I prefer to speak with minimum use of notes but in the case of Salisbury there was a huge amount of evidence and information to absorb so I had that in front of me and then I had a line of argument just as notes so I could see it easily and then look round the room to try and make my points more compelling.
0: Now it clearly gets very heated and and it's very serious matters What's it like between yourself and the various different members, including your your Russian counterpart, when you have a break? Is it civil? Do you ever go for dinners together in the evening? Is there much camaraderie?
1: There's a fair amount of camaraderie. Uh, We get on quite well personally. I have a good working relationship with the Russians at a personal Level. I think in some ways the danger is the opposite. The Secretary General of the UN said recently uh, that he thought there was so much going on in the world that the global political temperature was rising and he was worried about that. And he had a good warning for the permanent members of the Security Council. He said, You all have a good personal working relationship. You mustn't let that obscure the fact that in the world, difficult and unpredictable things are happening and the risk of miscalculation is high. And I thought that was a very good warning that we all need to take to heart and find a way of drilling down more into the underlying issues. It's not all about going on the Security Council stage.
0: And when it comes to the issues facing you in your current role, I was just wondering what you think the the biggest global conflicts or the things that pose the greatest risk or the most urgency are? I think
1: one has to pick non-proliferation. Uh, what's happening uh, with North Korea, the fact that they have not started the path towards uh, verifiable denuclearization, irreversible denuclearization. I think that's incredibly important and will be particularly acute because in 2020, there will be a big review conference of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. uh, And that's a major piece of international law, of international standards around nuclear weapons. So I think that's very important. And of course, one looks over at Iran and the risk that Iran will leave the nuclear deal negotiated with her. And I think that just means that nuclear issues are going to be very much at the fore for the next couple of years. If you look at the Middle East, we're very worried still about Syria. This is a conflict that's gone on too long. And you have these armies actually in the field, on the ground, from a number of countries. You have the Iranians there, you have the Russians there, but you also have UK, French, American troops there. So again, the risk of miscalculation or of the Russians or Syrians going back into a place like Idlib, overrunning Idlib, there are 3 million civilians there, We saw what happened to Aleppo. We see that the Syrian regime uses chemical weapons. I think the risk of something like that happening again is incredibly high. And Yemen and Libya are both badly in need of political processes to bring those conflicts to an end. Small progress is being made, but we all need to put our shoulders to the wheel and make that move along faster.
0: And what do you think Britain's role is in this? Because we have lots of debates about what Britain will be post-Brexit if we leave at some point soon. And here we have a permanent seat. So I wondered, what do you think, perhaps in a post-EU world, for, for Britain specifically, Britain will be doing on the Council? I think on the Council we'll be doing what we're doing now. We'll be trying to
1: help solve Uh, some of these complicated but vital regional geographical conflict issues and at the moment we help in a number of ways sometimes we provide the special envoy as in Yemen we have supporting diplomacy so our ambassadors in the Middle East region will be supporting that political process at the UN we the Brits help negotiate that we um talk to people, we try and persuade them to support proposals, we try and persuade them to be flexible so the UN can do its work, we talk to the coalition, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Yemenis, and through the UN there is of course a channel to the Houthis and others. So we support all that sometimes uh, financially with DFID money and we try and help the international community bring all that to a conclusion. So I don't think any of that will change at all. I think what might change is the fact that more people will be interested in the United Nations because it will then be one of the major international institutions that Britain belongs to. If you like, it will be a bigger stage for us to be an active independent force. Personally speaking, we get a bit more work when we leave the European Union because in the General Assembly, the European Union has been doing a lot of the negotiating on certain development issues. This was all allowed for. In the Lisbon Treaty. So that's been the direction of travel for over 10 years. But that will change, and we, Britain, will be doing that negotiating ourselves. So at the moment, my mission is training itself up for that point.
0: Now, just a final few quick things. And the first is about the UN as an organisation, uh, because you have heard about lots of the potentially good things going on there, but it also has been criticised for perhaps being guilty of corruption as an organisation in various ways. Just to read, I guess, a few of the headlines and we all know there's much more to a headline, but, you know, UN's World Health Assembly singles out Israel as world's only violator of health rights. And I know this is across the UN as an organization. UN elects Yemen, the worst on gender equality as VP at UN's gender equality agency. Do you think there is a fair comment in concerns about the UN as perhaps not a completely pure organization?
1: I'm a big fan of the UN, and I have been uh, since kid, but I think it is fair to say it's got a noble purpose, but it's not always fit for purpose. It has its fair share of institutional problems so it has had some corruption it has had some sexual exploitation and abuse, it does exhibit sexual harassment etc etc it behaves in that sense like a big organisation and the current Secretary General is trying to stamp all that out but he's also doing good things like trying to get more budget flexibility, finding ways of better value for money trying to get gender parity and he's managed to do that 50-50 men and women at UN headquarters there aren't many governments that could claim the same but i think on the examples you give it's important to distinguish between UN, the organization which is the big headquarters in new york and also geneva and a couple of other offices around the world and un the member states it's not the united nations the organization that is saying these things about israel it's the way the member states vote And sadly, there is very much an over-focus on what the Israelis do or don't do, which can lead to um, not enough focus being on what other countries in the region do on those same issues. That's not to say we will always agree with the Israelis. New on settlements, for example, we don't. But yes, we would support a much more evenly balanced look at some of these issues.
0: Okay, and then final, very quick things. Firstly, you're on social media. We hear a lot about how politicians should do more social media. Is it something you enjoy? Um, Would you say it enhances your job or is that a bit kind? (laughs)
1: Uh I, um, I'm not sure. I think it's for journalists like you to tell me whether it enhances uh, our job. We had a session with some journalists this morning and they were encouraging us to be interesting on Twitter. But of course, as civil servants, we can't be very interesting because then we wouldn't be good at doing our jobs and being uh, impartial. I actually have to confess, I find social media quite hard. Uh, things like podcasts, not so much. Twitter, trying to boil everything I want to say down to a limited Number of characters, I still find that hard.
0: And when it comes to standing out, we're talking about these various, you know, films or well, videos you can see of you on the council. Lots of people have commented on your fashion sense. Um, and that's so, very worrying. So there was a black leather jacket and I think a red boa that everyone, when you were in one of the uh, Russian things, I wonder what you thought of it because some people say, oh, people shouldn't be focusing on what, you know, diplomats, politicians wear. But um, I think you might have a bit of a fan club on it. <laughs> I think
1: it might be um, quite an eclectic fan club, to be absolutely honest. Uh, First of all, I think if you're an ambassador, you owe it to the company you are in and the institution you're accredited to, to respect it. And for me, that means trying to look smart. So I would always try and look my best and, and look smart. I struggle with my hair sometimes, which could usually do with a brush. But otherwise, I do try to look the, the part. The thing about the feather boa is brilliant because the Russians put in the press that I had a penchant for very expensive, rare, exotic furs you know implying that there was somehow something uh, illegal about that red and black boa that you mentioned and actually our answer was very simple it's fake
0: fur and this is fake news cost me five
1: um, pounds off the internet
0: finally um something we've asked nearly everyone who's come on this podcast is what's the worst advice you've ever been given Uh, (laughs) oh that's tough that's really tough
1: um, I think personally, it would probably be when the Prince and Princess of Wales visited Tokyo and we were all presented to them. And afterwards, a man, and a young man, not with the palace, but with the embassy, said to me very sniffily, Karen, you've curtsy like a scullery maid. Well, I've never seen a scullery maid. so, And I thought that was a particularly useless comment. And then I think some other comments would be around, oh, so-and-so didn't mean it, just ignore it whether it's a sexual remark or it's an unkind remark or it's a bullying remark to someone else. And I think, no, you should go and stand up for other people and for yourself in those situations.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.